Welcome back to Catholic Doctrine and Bible Study. This is Session 166. I'm your host, Jim Hawk. This session will pick up on Exodus chapter 16 where we left off. Uh, so that's beginning with verse 16. So unless you're driving, turn to Exodus chapter 16 and we're going to look at the regulations regarding the gathering and the eating of the manna, that is the bread from heaven. We said last time that the manna is the uh, Old Testament uh, prefiguration of what? Eucharist. And we know that Christ himself said, I am the bread of life. And Christ had many things to say about the bread from heaven in the New Testament. Uh, so moving on with that, what are some of the regulations? Well, we are told that uh, in verse 19, they're supposed to gather it each night, but in verse 19, we're said, you can't keep it uh, over until the tomorrow morning. So that is to say they are to receive their bread, but they don't get to store it up for a, a month at a time. They get their bread or they get this manna, the stuff that's left on the ground. Um, you know, they get it each day. And so it gets them through the day. Why do you suppose that God didn't say, hey, uh, why, if you're gathering, why not gather three weeks supply in advance? Well, um, because he knew that those people being just like us, if they did gather for three weeks, they would be less likely to trust God or even think about God during the, the next uh, two weeks and 20 days, right? So we tend to think, I don't know about you, but I tend to think most about God uh, when I'm in trouble. That's kind of human nature, right? Or when I need something. So they are taught hey, you know, you, you need to trust God for your everyday needs. And so it is with our own Our Father prayer, which says in part, what? Give us this day our daily bread. So our lives aren't all mapped out for us uh, so that we know everything that's going to happen to us in the future. We need to trust the Lord as we walk step by step with him each day. Okay, and so uh, they're not supposed to gather for more than one day, except on the day before the Sabbath. Uh, it says on the other six days you can gather it, but on the seventh day, the Sabbath, none of it will be there. Uh, and then it says, uh, verse 29, take note, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. That is why on the sixth day, he gives you food for two days. On the seventh day, everyone is to stay home and no one is to go out. After that, the people rested on the seventh day. 
Here's a little trivia question. Maybe you can win some money in Jeopardy or some other game show with this. Where is the first place in the Bible that the word Sabbath is used? Now, you might be tempted to say, oh, that's easy. That was back in uh, Genesis chapter 2, which we already studied, where the Lord rested on uh, the seventh day, right? But no, the word Sabbath is not used there. That's where God rested. It just says God rested in Genesis 2. But this Sabbath is first mentioned in Exodus 16, verse 23, and it is to be a day of complete rest for the people. Okay, so that sounds kind of antiquated in, this, in these days of ours. But I can recall in the early 80s and the late 70s in Texas, where I now live and where I used to live um, at that time, that there were things called blue laws. Blue laws prohibited most businesses from being open on Sunday. You could not go to a mall, a shopping mall, on a Sunday, they were closed out of a religious observance of, of a day of rest set aside for the Lord. They also didn't have little league games on Sundays and things of that nature. So we, we've lost that, and hopefully one day we will get that back where we set aside a day of rest. Uh, in Genesis 2, when God rested, that was an example for us to rest as well. Okay. Well, the people have gotten this bread-like substance. By the way, it is thought that uh, there is, you know, there is a substance that uh, is still found today in that area. It's a substance produced by insects in that desert at night when it's cold but it deteriorates at about 75 degrees. So you can't keep it more than a day or two. And uh, so uh, it's apparently still around in that area today of the, of the Middle East. So whether God provided this substance for them naturally or supernaturally, it's clear that God took care of the people. Well, they don't know what this stuff is. It's a bread-like substance. And uh, they called it, in verse 31 of Exodus 16, manna. And manna basically means, what is this? Because it, it was, uh, well, it's described here in verse 31, if you really want to, uh, to read about it. But the point is, they're supposed to, to gather it, and there's only enough for one day, except the day before the Sabbath, there's enough to gather for two days. They, they try to look for it on Sunday, some of the some of the disobeyers, but uh, it, it wouldn't grow on the, uh, on the Sabbath. So now we have an interesting little Catholic, uh, unique to Catholic thing in verse 33 of chapter 16. How about this? Um, the priest, uh, we'll read this, verse 33. Moses then told Aaron, take an urn, that's a container, and put an omer, that's a, a, a measurement, of manna in it. Then place it before the Lord in safekeeping for your descendants. So there's supposed to be a remnant of this, that they're going to keep it for future generations to, to see 
so that it reminds them of God. Okay, so where am I going with this? So the priest, Aaron, is supposed to put a container of this bread of life, if you will, manna, before, uh, before the Lord and the people. So in your margins next to Exodus 16, 30, uh, 33, I want you to write Hebrews 9, verse 3 and 4. Hebrews verse 9 verse uh, Hebrews chapter 9 verse 3 and 4 of course in the New Testament which says that the container was gold that it was later put in the ark of the covenant which was put in the tabernacle which is we haven't gotten there yet but that's the holiest of holy places so let me ask you this what Christian group puts the bread of life in a gold container in a holy tabernacle for worship? Man, those Catholics, they have a lot of unbiblical rituals, don't they? Uh, no. Uh, it comes right from this Exodus chapter 16, verse 33, and Hebrews chapter 9, verse uh, verses three and four. Okay, we look at the tabernacle and we are we see, of course, this bread of life, which we understand as Christ Himself. Okay, but Moses, as we've said several times, is kind of a prefiguring uh, an Old Testament uh, typology of of Christ. Right. So we have that. Um. Once again, so we move on, um, on to chapter 17. Well, once again, the people are complaining. Now they're out of water again. Um, they're, they're, why did you make us leave Egypt? Verse 7, they even wondered aloud, is the Lord with us or not? Um, now, the Lord's already led them out of slavery. He's given them uh, bread like substance to eat. He's given them quail to eat. He uh, is, has given them water in, in the past, and he's protected them all this time. And yet they still say, is the Lord with us or not? Verse 7 of chapter 17. So think of your own. Let's, let's not be so tough on these people. Um, I'm sure no, I'm sure we ourselves at some time in our lives have wondered, is God with us or not? We all go through our own trials and tribulations. But when you look at the blessings that God has really provided you, um, you know, maybe you can look back, look past some of the things where you, you think that God might be with you, might not be with you because he certainly is. So, they're grumbling about water. So what happens in verse 5 and 6? Moses takes his shepherd's staff. Remember, Jesus says in the New Testament, I am the good shepherd. But Moses takes his shepherd's staff. That's the staff that Moses used back when he was working with his father-in-law and he was, a, you know, he was herding sheep. He takes his shepherd's staff, strikes this rock, 
and life-sustaining water flows from the side of the rock. So who does this rock represent? Well, God, or to us, uh, even more specifically than God, Christ. Um, 1 Corinthians 10, 4 relates to this exact incident in Exodus, because as we've said multiple times, uh, the, uh, the Old Testament uh, and the, the New Testament, uh, there is synergy between the two. So you might want to write uh, uh, Exodus, uh, excuse me, you might want to write 1 Corinthians 10 verse 4 next to uh, verses 5 and 6 there in chapter 17. Uh, 1 Corinthians relates to this exact incident in Exodus and says that the rock was Christ. Okay. When Christ was pierced, water flowed from his side, per John chapter 19, verse 34. You don't have to write that if you don't want to, but you can. Um, once again, the water that saves the people prefigures what? Baptism. Baptism now saves you or is, is a part of that salvation process. Okay, now we got a little war that's going to start. Then from verse 8 through 14, the Israelites do battle against the Amalekites. Well, who are the Amalekites? You don't have to write this down. Amalek was the grandson of Esau. Remember Jacob's twin brother Esau? Well, Amalek was the grandson of Esau. And uh, Amalek probably started this tribe maybe 400 years before these events would have happened. So how did the Israelites win the battle? Well, once again, God could have just zapped the Amalekites and, and the Israelites would win. But no, we said before, God likes to work through people. In this case, he's working through Moses, but he likes to work through you and me if we will let him. Okay, so imagine you're Moses. So Moses has to do what? Uh, well, reading on in the story, Moses uh, keeps his has to keep his hand hands lifted up with the wooden staff in his hand. So when Moses keeps his hands lifted up with the wooden staff in his hands, Israel does well. So what does that remind us of today? Well, maybe, okay, at Mass, when the priest lifts up his hands in Mass, he's lifting them unto the Lord in intercessory prayer. Again, these Catholics sure have some unbiblical rituals, don't they? No, this is right out of the Bible, all right? Just like Moses raises his hands. By the way, in verse 10, we're introduced to a new character who will play a big part in salvation history. It is Joshua. We see him mentioned in uh, verse 9 and 10. Joshua is kind of Moses' assistant. And uh, spoiler alert, he's the one who's actually going to lead the people to the promised land. But we'll get to that. Uh, we'll get to that later. Uh, so Moses outstretches his hands, and as long as he's holding up the wood, uh, the, the, the battle goes well. So speaking of outstretched hands, who else stretched out his hands on a piece of wood in intercession for us? Christ, of course. And we see another illusion of Christ in verse 12, 
When Moses grew tired, what did he sit on for rest? That's right, a rock. So the battle was won with intercessory prayer. You can't win the battle for salvation without God. Can't do it. Can't work your way to heaven. That is a heresy known as Pelagianism, which the church condemned in the 300s. Okay, So God is winning the battle. Moses is just doing what he is told. So remember that in your own life, right? God has given each of us a mission. He has given us something to do. And uh, so we need to, we need to do it. Um, so along those lines, what if Moses said, you know, God, I don't feel like holding up this staff today. Uh, I'm just gonna let you do the work. Well, Moses had to be obedient he had to participate in his salvation, even though the real power was all God's. Um, so we, we also see in chapter 17, the first reference to Joshua. I just mentioned that. Uh, then in chapter 18, I won't belabor this, but we see that Moses evangelized his father-in-law Jethro who later starred in the Beverly Hillbillies. For, <laughs> actually, that's uh, a different Jethro, okay? And you may not understand that reference unless you're at least, you know, in your 60s. But Jethro gives him advice as to how to organize the people, which looks, strangely enough, like our own Catholic Church hierarchy. Verses 19 through 23 in chapter 18 says that there's supposed to be the people's representative before God, which we understand as the Pope, then others appointed by him. Appointed, that's a key word. Bishops and priests are appointed. They're not elected by the people. We're not a congregational structure. It is a calling. There's the laying on of hands. Okay. So what are we supposed to learn from these chapters? Well, let's go to the Lord in prayer. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Lord, these chapters teach us much, um, that we are not to doubt you, um, that you will meet our needs, though not always in the time frame or the manner that we might have preferred. Uh, that we need to be committed to you. We don't want to waste all years on what should be uh, an easy journey for us uh, because of lack of commitment, that we need to do what you tell us to do, um, that um, we, uh, we need to allow the visible Christ in the form of Eucharist to guide us, just as the visible sign of you, the pillars of, of the cloud and fire, um, or I should say the, the cloud and the pillar of fire, guided your people, the Israelites, and um, mostly to recognize the graces that flow from the sacraments, to participate with you in your works. We are your body. Um, we recognize that you like to work through people, and we pray that you will give us the grace to, um, to do your bidding. Yes, this is the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.